This episode of the Stretch Four Podcast is brought to you by Future. Future is an online fitness training app that is powered by a relationship with a personal trainer. If you're a busy professional like myself who can't commit to an in-person trainer and don't have the deep pockets to do that, Future is the perfect app for you. It provides all the advantages of a professional trainer, but without the need to meet in person. The app has all the features required to stay in touch with your trainer in real time and get feedback on your workouts, gains, and your fitness program. Right now, I'm building my endurance to run a half marathon this year. So I'm watching my weight, and my trainer is giving me customized workouts that fit building leg strength and building endurance and cardio. Now's the perfect time to start your journey with Future and start building a better health and wellness regimen. If you're aiming to lose weight, get in shape, just get in the gym, Future is the perfect place to start. Check out Future at future.co or also check out the link in the show notes to get 50% off your first three months. Don't miss this opportunity. This episode of the Stretch 4 podcast is brought to you by Modern Tax. Modern Tax is a powerful data p- platform that offers businesses the ability to verify customer information such as business good standing and identity quickly and accurately. The data platform is a comprehensive solution for verifying U.S. tax information on businesses and consumers. It offers an unpre- unprecedented level of accuracy and reliability. The market for such services is estimated to grow to $23 billion and Modern Tax provides the same services that you could get from other products at half the cost and delivering the data in much faster speed. Customers range from Fortune 100 direct insurance carriers all the way to burgeoning startups. We're proud to be the go-to source for valuable and essential data, providing a much needed service for businesses of all sizes. Knowing your business customers is becoming increasingly more important as companies move and become more global and more online. In today's fast-paced and ever-changing business environment, there's over $100 billion annually in fraud committed online through financial services. It's essential to stay informed and up-to-date on the companies that you're working with and the businesses that you're selling to. The best way to gain an accurate understanding of a business in the U.S. is to access their tax reports and filings. This information can be publicly available, but it can be hard to access quickly, efficiently, and in one simple dashboard. This is where Modern Tax comes in providing you with an effective and easy way to access business tax tax records and identity and gain insights into the business before you begin working with them. Request your first business verification for free today by using the promo code STRETCH4 when you go to moderntax.io and complete the contact form. Now is the time to take advantage of the incredible useful service to ensure that you're well-informed and aware of the businesses you're working with. Welcome back to the Stretch Four Podcast. This is your host, Matt Parker. On this podcast, we do our best to give deep dives in the world of venture-backed startups from inside the mind of the founders that are building those companies. We look to explore how businesses are being built in Silicon Valley from the perspectives of those founders that are building the companies. We generally like to have discussions with other founders and friends of the show around the business, lifestyle, and motivations of building venture-backed companies and those essential uh, methods for optimizing your performance. So this podcast will always be about that. And this week, I wanted to highlight two things. One, I had the opportunity to attend an event of all places at Stripe. 
which is we'll talk a little bit about this, the news of Stripe and them trying to raise another four billion dollars, their Series I round of funding. But I did get to go to an event, first outsider event at their new headquarters in South San Francisco. So I enjoyed that conversation. It was a sit down with Elad Gill and Dylan Field. Founder, CEO of Figma, which if you know anything about tech, they recently sold for $20 billion. Dylan is all of 31 years old. And, you know, I sat front row for this event. I, I try to go to, you know, one event, maybe one event a month now, I think. Like obviously with the kid at the crib, with, with the wifey, like we always got to coordinate. So, but this one was, you know, unique in that, you know, you're talking to a founder who just had a big exit. Eli Gill is a pretty well-renowned investor. Mover shaker here in Silicon Valley. They had a very interesting conversation. So I'll talk a bit about that. And then at the end, I got an interview with a friend of the show, Scott Britton. Scott is a very active and fastly growing substacker that I happen to meet. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, very interesting perspective. Uh, was a part of the Troops AI team that sold to Salesforce last year. So he's doing his time now at Salesforce, but he's also doing some really interesting things on Substack. We got really deep into some some very interesting conversations. So that'll be at the tail end of the show. This week for me, it's a Monday, so I'm heading back to Charlotte tomorrow. Visit my mom who had uh, some surgery and she's recovering and she's doing well, but I'm going to go hang out with her for four days uh, back in Charlotte. So if you're in Charlotte and you're listening to the show, hit me up. Maybe we can grab lunch or something like that. And then I'm heading down to Miami on Friday. One of my good friends, friend, another friend of the show, my buddy Steve's having his 40th down in Miami. So I'm going to go ahead and kill two East Coast birds with one stone. And I'm going to try to get a show done while I'm in Miami with a, a guest, with a special guest. And so that's what's happening for me on the modern tax front. We got the FinTech meetup coming up on March the 19th and 20th. I'll be in Vegas at the Aria I got a presentation. So definitely if you're at the FinTech meetup, let's link up. Let's grab food. Let's catch up. If you're listening to this podcast, really enjoyed my time at the Cap Table Coalition event last Friday or the Friday before last. I had a good time there. Always good to sit down with some some folks in the Cap Table Coalition and, and, and really interested in, in what they got going on over there in Phoenix. Very hospitable company. Shout out to Richie. We should be having podcasts with him coming up soon. But other than that, man, February has flown by a very, very quick month. A very, very, I don't know where it went, but it's the shortest month of the year. It's Black History Month. Also, shout out to Nipsey Hussle, five year anniversary of Victory Lap. Rest in peace to Nipsey Hussle. I think one of the things I re-listened to his, one of his last interviews, The Breakfast Club, and reflecting on the rappers that we lose and the artists that we lose. I think they hit a little, they hit home more for me just being in my thirties, seeing Nipsey Hussle kind of die when he was really starting to figure a lot of things out. And that album, you know, just playing that album, it causes a lot of like, where were you at that moment? And like, I kind of think, man, that's been five years since that album came out and time is flying by. And I, I really do think that Nipsey Hussle was a really, really influential person. Maybe not as big as a rapper as like your Jay Z and, Drake, but I think from an influential standpoint, when you look now, you look back at his untimely death and some of the, you know, missions and things that he was really preaching, I would say, uh, really impactful, specifically as a founder of the black CEO of a company, you know, just thinking a lot about dissecting the way the game goes and the way the inf you know, information flows. So if you do get a chance, check out that interview with Nipsey Hussle on The Breakfast Club. It was one of his last ones. He did it right around the time Victory Lap came out, which 
just hit the five year anniversary last week. So just just kind of that's something I've been really thinking about a lot over the past couple of days. Other than that, I think that's it. Thank you all for listening to the Stretch 4 podcast. Let's get right to it. Yeah, so this week I had a chance to check out the Stripe headquarters in South San Francisco. There was an event held there. It was hosted by Elad Gill. It was kind of weird. I think the first one I tried to go to and I wasn't on the list. It was kind of like this guest list thing. You could come. They would they had to offer you an invite. So this one, I got an invite. I think the first one, I didn't get an invite. I enjoyed my time there. It's always interesting going to these events because, you know, I'm in my mid-30s now, still in the founder grind. But you realize how young the game gets where, you know, a lot of the founders and a lot of the folks I'm meeting there are in their early, mid-20s. There are some folks in their 30s, but generally skews younger. And I think a lot of people are really fans of the the game and fans of the startup culture and the ecosystem. you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going there. Again, someone had been following a bit, just kind of his eyes as a solo capitalist would have a quick, quick conversation with him, asked him just how he how he's kind of parlayed into becoming this solo capital guy who's involved in so many companies. And he was just he was pretty straight up. He said that he really just started helping founders. And a part of this mission with Stretch 4 is to create content that I think founders can benefit from. And, you know, I think that's a, a area of focus of mine, I think, for sure this year, just trying to interact with more founders and try to be helpful, whether that's making small investments, whether that's making introductions, whether that's giving product feedback or whether that's just sharing my learnings. I believe there's a lot of different ways you can go. And he's the founder of Color Genomics. He was also the co-founder and CEO of Mixer Labs, which sold to Twitter. So he's definitely got his name out there and he's definitely been one of the big kind of maybe unheralded champions of Silicon Valley. And so I think a lot of what he, how he really got good is he was a founder and he started doing things with other founders. Obviously he had a lot of things to go his way, but he's been very successful. He interviewed Dylan Field, who was an interesting person. I never met Dylan before this event. I think he, he fits a lot of the tropes that you get with Silicon Valley people that are successful, right? He's very short, kind of very socially awkward white guy, very quirky, I would say. But I mean, Figma's a damn good product. Like I can't, I can't think of any other product since I've been out here in the Bay Area. I moved out here in 2017. That's really just had just no all gas, no brakes, right? That product since 2017 has just been shot to the moon. It was definitely the darling of Silicon Valley, unheraldedly. Now with, and this is ironic that this event was at Stripe, which their new headquarters is insane. I was texting my wife as I was there. I'm, this is a crazy ass office. It's just all just, very well designed it drill it's well put together which is interesting considering some of the news we got this week that stripe is trying to raise four billion dollars they literally need 2.3 billion dollars by the end of the quarter just to meet a tax bill so crazy stuff like that but the interview was good they hit ai they hit design they talked about school and careers i mean dylan field was a teal fellow and all the kind of typical silicon valley conversations i think that was more enjoyable for the, the the type of people that were there. So the type of people that were there, I met founders that it ranged from raising $40 million on a Series B to just getting started. People early 20s, fresh out of college, just gung-ho reading every book they can get their hands on, just like that fire. And like I always think I became a Silicon Valley snob or founder type in my 
late 20s. Like I didn't even know what Silicon Valley was probably until my mid 20s. So I was like 25 or three or four years out of college. Like I had no idea. And I knew it existed from social network and watching a movie, but I didn't, I didn't really, really know what was happening out here really until my mid 20s. And I literally came out here on a whim, flew out here for like a week, stayed with my buddy Steve, who I'm going to celebrate his 40th in Miami next weekend. And then I was just running around, going to all these companies, meeting with all these people. And it's crazy when you meet people that are in their early 20s that went to Stanford, went to Berkeley. It's a different experience. I don't really know if it's an advantage because there's so much hype, right? Even five, six years ago, this was not a place that was so hype, right? We didn't have all these TV shows, full on media coverage of Silicon Valley nonstop, right? You can you can get content on everything that's happening here. If you really want to know what's really happening, you could just pay for you can read Puck. A friend of mine, Teddy, we work at it, worked at the same we work. You know, he writes for Puck. All he does is insider behind the scenes coverage of Silicon Valley. You can read the information. Jessica Lesson, that's a really great platform with all the news and tech. Mainstream tech news is tech crunch. So it's so much content information. And even five years ago, YC was was booming, but it was not just this massive institution, right? So I was at this event, Stripe's a YC company. Eli Gill's heavily involved in investing in YC, but Dill Field had a good perspective, which I think a lot of founders probably feel the same way, right, with YC, where he, he basically asked him, why didn't you do YC? And he was, well, I felt built a strong enough network where I didn't need YC. Again, he did the Teal Fellowship, so he dropped out, took 100K from Peter Teal, and kind of was off and running after that. But it was interesting because in a, this was clearly a pro YC crowd, and he was just, I didn't really need YC. And this is seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. So there was an interesting aura in the room uh, around that. Dylan is, it, it's so crazy being around wealthy people in tech versus wealthy people in other areas because outside of just knowing the public valuation of Sigma and what they sold for or the private sale, man, they were never a publicly traded company. You would never know this guy's worth a couple billion. You know, you just, I mean, I'm sure there are people there that were watching his back, but there's just never, it's never lost on me the way people approach wealth in the Valley versus the way they approach it just down in LA. You go to LA and billionaires are letting you know they're billionaires. They're flexing, they're flossing, you go out to the spot, you're going to know where you're at. But the Bay is still this unique place where massive amounts of wealth is almost hidden in plain sight because this is a guy, he's wearing DC shoes. He's not super flashy. He's got his crew with him. And I'm, I'm sure he's got people around him that are take care, crazy people or whatever. But it's just it's just a very different environment. And I, I will say that's one thing that as a black man, one of the, I think somebody said it, the happiest place you can be is doing something that's fulfilling your life or being wealthy and unknown. You can literally just walk around the block and nobody's approaching you. No one's much less do you need security 24 seven just to go to the grocery store. And so that's one of the things you do appreciate about Silicon Valley is that people have can achieve massive success quite early and not really have to be sheltered at all times. So yeah, so they had a good conversation, overall good event great facility. We got, everybody got the book, High Growth Handbook, which I think needs to be updated. So that's Eli Gill's book, which is all about just grow, 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 grow your startup and how to grow your startup, which I think is still relevant. But obviously in these times, there's probably some adjustments that could be made, but overall a great event. 
again, thanks thanks for Eli Gill and his team, Strike Press, for putting the event on. It was great. And it just shows goes to show that, you know, events are happening back here in San Francisco. I mean, this event was packed out. Pretty sure it was sold out. And it was a, it was a good event. And I think we'll have more of these conversations and hopefully these conversations become fruitful for folks and people get opportunities. But I definitely enjoyed my time at Striped New South San Francisco headquarters. All right. Today's guest on the Stretch Four podcast, uh, episode five, is Scott Britton. And Scott Britton is someone who's a fellow Substacker. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. He's been part of an exited company to Salesforce in 2022 and has really doubled down on content creation, has a very vibrant Substack, over 30,000 subscribers. So if you're listening to this podcast on the Stretch 4 channel, make sure to check out Scott. He's a very interesting Substack. And just recapping, Scott sold his company Troops.ai in 2022 to Salesforce to help Salesforce essentially bring together the Slack integration. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the show. But Scott, welcome to the Stretch Four Podcast. Thank you for coming on. Matt, it's great to be here, man. So Scott, jumping right in, one of your posts that really stuck out to me when you were having this transformation, which you can share with the, the audience about how that happened roughly about four years ago. You said that you were focused so heavily on becoming somebody and in today's world of tech and venture capital, what is becoming? What does did becoming somebody mean to you before you had, uh, you know, an enlightenment? Oh man, I hope we got a lot of time. Uh, I I think just like a lot of founders, like a lot of people that are probably in your audience, my entire life was about achievement. And early on in my life, that took the form of sports, and then school, and then you know, high school girls having a lot of friends, like it was all about, you know, being the best in everything and trying to be the best in everything. And I think when I got to my professional world, that manifested in my career where I wanted to be the most successful. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to be well-regarded and respected. And it's not that any of those things are inherently bad, but I think that I let that desire really run my life where there was just so much constant, incessant striving. And I think when I think about, when I think about things now, there's kind of like, there's taking action in life from inspiration and joy and purpose. And then there's taking action because you basically more e- egoic drives, which are, you know, things like wanting to be important, wanting, wanting status, wanting to be highly regarded, which are really all are kind of self-preservation techniques manifested in modern times. So yeah, man, I mean, I wanted to, you know, sell my company and make a boatload of money and was hell bent on doing that. And my inner world was just really uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I think, I think a lot of a lot of founders probably know what I'm talking about where they're constantly ruminating on ideas or strategies or how to get the most out of every situation and every person. And I just thought that that was a very normal way to experience the world. And I didn't know that there was actually another way to do that. And so that's kind of what my experience was with you know trying to become someone and to receive that validation and 
Yeah, kind of all changed around age 30 when I had my first ayahuasca experience. That is the word. That was that was my next word. So you expounded on ayahuasca in this post, and I'm a newbie. I don't know what my community is. I've heard ayahuasca a couple of times, so I know how to pronounce it. But first of all, just give anybody listening just a, a high-level view of what the ayahuasca experience is, and, and maybe we could take it from there. Like, what, what is it, and, and what does it entail? Yeah, yeah. So ayahuasca is basically a two roots from the Amazon jungle that when mixed together have psychedelic properties. The primary agent in ayahuasca that allows you to have kind of a profound experience is called DMT. The crazy thing about DMT is that we produce it naturally. We have as much DMT naturally occurring in our body as we do things things like serotonin, which makes us happy. But modern science has yet to understand what the purpose of DMT in humans and all mammals is. DMT is in all mammals and in thousands of plants. And so basically the DMT today, it's a, it's a psychedelic substance. It is illegal in the US. Uh, however, if you, if you go through a religious or a church, like a, a, it is legal. Um, in the U.S. and so, but it has to be done through basically a sanctioned church. And there's lots of like Brazilian and South American shamans that establish churches to basically serve this stuff in the U.S. You can obviously go to like Peru or some of the other places that have it. And I think important context for the listeners is I have I've never been a drugs person. You know, I like smoked weed a couple times in my life, drank alcohol, but never was someone doing drugs. And with the ayahuasca, I had met a bunch of entrepreneurs who had done it before and had all reported that they had lasting change. Like like they had a completely renewed perspective that changed the way that they interacted with the world. And to me, that was very interesting. Like I wasn't really someone to be interested in some ephemeral high that made me feel like crap or put my health at danger. But that part really made it interesting. And when I started to learn more about it and learn things like the fact that no one has ever died (laughs) using it, it's not addictive. I started to be open to the idea of engaging with this substance. And a friend of mine, just after I'd gotten out of a three and a half year relationship, had asked me if I wanted to do it and had actually had someone coming out to New York to help facilitate the experience. Um, and so I did a three-day retreat. And what I could say, I went into that with the intention of reconnecting with my childlike joy, I think, and and also removing a lot of patterns and programs that no longer serve me. I think I had a lot of just shame about different things in my life. And what happened was, is that the first night I felt like I learned how to laugh again, which was really crazy. Like I felt like all, like my body just like literally like shakes like a rattle. And all of a sudden I was belly laughing for like an hour. And I thought, wow, this is really profound. It wasn't a visual experience. You know, I think a lot of people that hear about ayahuasca, they think about throwing up and crazy visuals. My experience wasn't like that at all. And I was in a circle of 10 people and no one threw up. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of sensationalism around the substance. But the second night was, I think, where the real profound stuff, even more profound stuff where was where I had visual experiences of 
the formations for the shame that I had. And I was riding a rhinoceros and the rhinoceros was bucking its horn and exploding the memories as if they were almost glass. And I, when that happened, I felt a sense of freedom from these experiences and I guess what many people would call traumas and an immense amount of peace and joy afterwards. It's, it's really fascinating to me, these stories, because it seems to be a new trend, right? Like, but, but from your perspective, it's completely changed your life, you know? So it's like, it's not just a trendy thing if it's really changing someone's life. So maybe, you know, you, this happened to you about four years ago. So you've been on this journey for four years ago, but you, you know, as far as like your company and your career, you all sold and exited last year. So what was the like, change like you didn't just stay on this retreat like you came back to work yeah you still were producing you still were trying to hammer it out you were still going after these maybe you know these achievements so how did it change you kind of overall or is it a, is an evolutionary yeah. process that yeah happened? yeah so i think so i think what that ayahuasca experience d- did was it it allowed me to touch a part of myself and the divine that I had never experienced before. You know, I grew up going to church, but I would just sit there, right? Like there was no true ex- like experience with God. And I felt like this experience allowed me to have that. And I'd say that for the first month I went back and I felt like a cloud. I was on a cloud. I was nicer to everyone. I was really light. And then all the same old behaviors started to set in again, where I was impatient. I would be short with people. I was demanding. I had a lot of anger towards certain people. And what I, I had a, I had, I, I did have a meditation practice at this point. So I had that leading up to the ceremony and after, but I really started to take an interest in spirituality and even things like mysticism, Buddhism, before that experience, if you would have looked at my Kindle, it would have just been all like self-improvement business books, right? And then after this experience, I'm like, wait a second, there's like a lot more going on in reality than I thought there was. And so I was reading about Buddhism. I was reading Sam Harris's books. I was reading about psychedelics, altered states of consciousness, the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan was a really formative book for me. And so I would say like my curiosity, even though I was still running my business, shifted towards this kind of inner experience versus the outer experience of life. Now that doesn't mean that like I wasn't trying hard at work, I wasn't an active participant, but you know, if you looked at the podcasts I listened to, if you looked at the books I was reading, like it was all around this stuff. And so it was a really interesting balance to strike of, like you said, achieving in the world and, and then having these deep experiences and wanting to go deeper. And to be honest, like that's pretty much what the last four years has looked like. I mean, it's only gotten, I'm still trying to figure out how to strike that balance. And I think personally, you mentioned, you mentioned my Substack. personally, what I feel like is at least there needs to be more of, I don't want to say it's missing is 
a founders and leaders who are are doing both, right? I think there's a a misconception about spirituality that if you really want to get serious about it, you go live in an ashram or you like drop out of life and there's a perception amongst spiritual people that business people are bad and making money is greedy and all of these things and I think there's just a big opportunity to straddle both and let people know that you can be successful in your inner world and that can fuel the outer world. Can, you know, your relationship with the divine and your consciousness evolution actually positively impacts your ability in the material business world. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do is is kind of be in that middle zone and learning how to do that has pretty much been the last four years of my life. Yeah. It seems, it seems like an interesting fascination of like, you go through this world as a founder, you know, you're given all the books to read from like the tech venture capital eco chamber. And and you you go through that and you, you, you go through an accelerator and you hear about all these different things to learn how to build your company I do feel like it's a it's an you know immersion of new things, and we talk to people from different walks of life, different views. You know, some people are in a Judeo Christian view, and they're you know like I mean me, you know, I'm going to read the Bible this year for the first time in probably like ten years, just because it's like okay, it's let awesome. Me, let me adjust some of my content that I'm consuming and, and go back to a spiritual, timeless classic in in a way, and it, it has a spiritual impact on me being a father, being a family family man now. But I do think there is a, a gap in the market for founders to experience these these kind of, you know, spiritual, have these spiritual experiences, right? Your podcast listening will change, your, your Goodreads will change. What do you think is, you know, why is it so hard, I guess, to, to discover these things, right? Like, why is, why is this information not pushed to the center? You know, because because it also seems like it's healthier, right? Like your 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 mind is more free, you're calm, you're you're doing more meditation. Like, why is it? Why is this not pushed on us as founders when we get started? Uh, from your perspective, well, I think I think like what I've come to learn is that a lot of like everything, all of my wants, needs, desires everything in my preferences, it's all been conditioned. It's all been basically a product of the events in my life and what culture has told me and what my parents told me. And, and I mean, understanding that is a big part of the evolution of consciousness. And then basically being able to observe that and then selectively choose what you want at a certain point. And so I think like our society puts like if you look at an indie like the in india like at least traditionally like their society values spiritual growth more than they value money more than they value success if you look at america like we're basically you know built on enterprising opportunists and so our culture has imbued like that whole mindset that like that is the way to make it in this world. And so that's how we behave. And it's, it's, it's just everywhere from media to like what we learn in school. And so, yeah, I think like 
there's just a lot of people out there that think that ultimately what is going to make them happy and relieve suffering is some type of achievement that's financial in nature and including investors, including everybody in this game. And that just isn't true. <laughs> like that, that, like, like, like it is scientifically proven and it's just not true that like, if you are just chasing money and you don't take care of the other parts of your life, you're not going to be happy. And for me, this whole journey that I've been on has been learning how to basically love myself and be happy without the external circumstances having to match my preferences, which to me, I think is a much more durable and exciting place to be than needing everything to go right for you to be happy. And I mean, any founder knows how hard that is. Like that's a lot of shit doesn't go right in life and with your company. Yeah. And I think, do you think that you, I mean, you had this awakening about four years ago now and you've, you've, you've been able to see success on the achievement side, but what do you think of the years before, you know, you had this awakening and kind of, how do you, how do you, how do you see your life before? It's almost like, yeah, I think there's a, I think, yes. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's some really good people that have written books about this. There's a specifically David Hawkins. He wrote a book called Power vs. Force. There's a guy named Ken Wilber. He wrote The Spectrum of Consciousness. There seems to be a consistent trajectory of what the human experience is and on the inside and outside. And it's it's something that we all have to go through. And so let me just start off say like, I had to go through this and every single person in their own evolution has to go through this. And if you look at these lower states, and I actually made up my own unified model of consciousness that I could talk about right now. If you look at those lower states, it starts off, uh, you know what, maybe we'll actually just go through a really simple model. There's the life happens to me, by me, through me, as me model. And this is something that I first learned about from the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which is a seminal founder book. And basically on the bottom left is the life happens to me. And this is basically people that live in victimhood. So it's people that are like, this is unfair. Everyone else is lucky. This sucks. Nothing good ever happens. You know, there's people that live their life like this. And then at a certain point, people start to realize that they have agency in their life where they're like, you know what? Actually, if I do something, this good thing will happen. And they start to take responsibility for the outcomes in their life and the actions and decisions they make. And most people just stay there. Like most people, like that is the American mindset. That's the life by me. I make life happen. It's the entrepreneur mindset. I make life happen. And that's all there is. And I thought that that's all there was. And it's what we're told. It's what majority of society, I mean, literally there's every walk into a gym, see like 10 shirts that say like, you get in what you put out. As a competitive athlete, I had this drilled into me my entire life. And what ends up happening is, and so, so when I look at, when I look before the ayahuasca experience and before all this, and by the way, it's, it took me a couple of years after that to get to what I'm talking about now. It was the life by me, life by me phase of evolution. That's what it was. It was, which is just like, you know, it's how humans have thought, thought all there is for this very long time. But what happens is, is in that state, someone usually has something happen like 
an incredibly tragic event, like someone dies or they have a near-death experience or like they get sick, that can cause them to reevaluate the desire to control everything. Or someone achieves so much and they get to the top of the mountain that they thought was going to make them happy. And they're like, this is it. Is this it? There's nothing more. And there's a great book called The Second Mountain about this. And it's also another popular founder book. And usually one of those two places, people start to walk around and go, what the hell? There's got to be something more here. And from that place, there comes a a process of letting go of trying to control life and surrendering to life and kind of allowing things to happen without trying to control it all. And a lot of times this is accompanied by some type of mystical experience or divine interaction. And that's what happened to me. And after that, you start to get in touch with a higher divinity. I don't, there's really no other way to say it where when I quiet my mind, I have a voice inside of my head that gives me instructions on what to do. And it's not my thoughts. And I can ask this voice, I can ask this, any questions, get any answers. And, and so that's one input of the divine. And the other is the way that life shows up where I will just get signs like unexplainable synchronicity. And what you realize is that and, and this kind of guides you, what you realize is that you are actually a vessel for that God or divinity or universe or source to flow through you into creation. And, and that is, that's, that's, that's the next phase of evolution. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. And there's even higher phases than this, you know, things like non-duality, which we can talk about or not, but, but that's kind of a pretty consistent trajectory for humans that work on their consciousness and this, this entire experience we call life. Matt, you're muted again. To kind of discuss this part, right? So you, 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 unpack, you, you went through a lot there. So unpacking it and, I, and these resources, I'm going to make sure to link these out because I'm going to actually dig into some of these resources as well. So it's very interesting because I think as a founder, you know, particularly me as a black founder in Silicon Valley, the life happens to me. This is unfair phase is, is kind of what happens initially, right? Like you, you pitch your yeah. idea. No, nobody's going to fund you. You know, it's like this whole like 1% or 0.1% of venture capital goes to people of color and, you know, different diverse groups. So you, you live in that world for as long as you, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, they just live there, right? It's just, they get discouraged yeah. and they just say, you know, they leave the industry and they're very bitter and they're very just dark around just like anything that has to do with tech. And the second part is like you get to the like by me phase, which is probably where I'm at and a part into this, like looking beyond that. But it's like, hey, like I control my own destiny, right? Like I'm yep. here, my boots are on the ground, just like everybody else. I can go, you know, move mountains just like everybody else. It's just willpower. It's sheer grit. It's sheer strength. And then that part, like you said, like you find you come to this place where you're either you either get broken, right? And, and, and another one, maybe on a lighter note, maybe your company can fail, right? It's like, hey, like it failed because of me, right? Like it's like, you can't really go back to this, you know, because I think for me, once you raise venture capital and you, and you get past that, life is unfair and then you fail. It's like, well, you know, you got the opportunity and you didn't get there. The other part, what is interesting is to say, you get the exit or you get the success and you're still not happy, which I think that's a big part of Silicon Valley that nobody talks about is how many millionaires and multimillionaires and even billionaires are so unhappy 
Yeah. Once they've gotten that first win, second win, third win, a lot of what you're talking about is instilling yourself with this new approach to where you exited, but you're still now starting over as a content creator and trying to build something new, but you, you have a different approach. Walk me through, you know, that, like that feeling of exiting your company. And I know, you know, it's undisclosed what you guys exited for, but just walk me through that, you know, being on this new journey, what it felt like to go through that experience. Yeah. So I would say, first off, it was a massive relief to sell the company. As much of the inner growth as I had done, there was still a lot of ego tied up in the company and the outcome of it. Um, I have a lot of successful friends. I have a lot of friends that sold companies or made a lot of money. And it, you know, I didn't want to be the guy that, that didn't make it. I didn't want to be left behind. And I didn't want to also feel the, I did this for seven years and got nothing out of it, which I think is something that is very common. And so, you know, there, it was a very stressful thing. And what this is going to sound a little interesting, but when I was going through the M&A process, by the way, it was like over a year long. And so it was just like a complete slog. And the entire thing was, I, I was at a headspace where, yes, I wanted it to happen, but I was also using the whole situation to evolve my spirituality. And the way that you do that is you basically observe your response to life and this is called karma yoga, but basically you're kind of monitoring when you get disturbed and triggered and examining what is the cause of that and sitting with that emotion or thought and allowing it to, and basically reprogramming it. And so just to give you an example, you know, we had a, we had an, a verbal offer from another big company like Salesforce and it died. And I was really upset and disappointed. And, you know, that was an opportunity to like, examine like why I was so upset by that and and kind of sit with a lot of these low self-esteem issues about this idea that I was worthless if I didn't sell my company, which I think a lot of people have and they don't even know they have it. And so I um, like really was very focused on selling the company, but also very focused on how to use this to evolve spiritually. And after we sold, man, I mean, it was a massive relief. Like I went to I went on a vacation, but I knew that I had been in I had been out of alignment with troops for many years. I did not want to it was no longer just something that I was super passionate about and I was just trying to get it to a finish line and I, I literally think that out of alignment like caused me to be physically ill. And so I was very focused on getting back into things that just brought me joy regardless of like some conditionality. And so like, you know, it's very easy for someone who exits a software company to be like, well, writing a blog is like not as financially lucrative or interesting or a little world changing as starting software companies. Like you get way more leverage on your time, but like, that's not the, that's not the freaking point. Like the point is to do stuff you authentically love and bring you joy. And so I just started writing about my experience after we sold and not knowing where it's going to take me. And I think that's another big part of the whole spiritual thing is like learning to trust life and just 
do the things that give you energy and trust that they will take you where you're supposed to go. And all the content stuff was just giving me lots of energy. And so I just kept wanting to lean into it. And yeah, I've been given guidance to to write a book on it and to write a book on the exact topic that we're talking about for founders and entrepreneurs and people that are trying to kind of be in both worlds and make sense of it all. And so, so yeah, man, like, you know, that's kind of my experience and I'm still working at Salesforce and I have responsibility there and our team is doing some really great stuff, but I'm definitely very passionate about spreading these ideas into the world, into a world of people that, you know, maybe this isn't something that they spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very unique uh, approach of, you know, building a company. And I think every founder is in that position where, you know, the goal is to eventually sell or exit, right? That's the big dream. But building a healthy life, you know, mentally, spiritually, financially is just as critical as that, probably more critical in many cases. Uh, so from your perspective, you know, you went through this exit process, you're still at Salesforce. Talk maybe a bit about transitioning now, because I believe what's happening is this proliferation of content and information and content creation actually is becoming a, really a part of being a founder, right? I mean, there's so many new content mediums. How did you kind of get started in this route? Did it just start with some blog posts on Substack? I mean, you've, you've expanded quite a bit. You have podcasts, you've experimented with video, you're doing yeah. various things. Like what, what got you going and like, what was your first step? So I, I was, I was definitely an early content creator. Um, like back in the day, like I was blogging in 2012, 2000 on, I actually had a podcast in 2013 that I started and I, and it was actually a top 20 iTunes business podcast. And I shut it down when I started my tech company, which was a huge financial and personal mistake because that would probably be a multi-million dollar year media property. If I, if I literally did nothing and just kept going and just rode the iTunes algorithm. So like I had a background in content creation. I got away from it because I thought that I needed to do a SaaS company because I thought that that's what was success because I knew some people that made a bunch of money doing that. And getting back into it, yeah, I, I, I think I started with writing because I like to write and I felt really compelled to just share all of the things that I had went through and all the things that I had learned. And what I think is amazing is that as a founder, as a person, like when you start to put yourself in the world, out in the world, you attract people that have similar ideas and like the same things and are interested in that stuff. And you repel people that, you know, no longer resonate with you. And so it was really interesting for me personally, because everybody knew me as this like founder dude, this like entrepreneur guy who like, I I, I was very consummate bachelor for most of my twenties, early thirties. Like people just had this perspective of me yet. I was this whole different person. I had this whole other side of me that I didn't want to be in your face about, about, Hey, look at me. I'm all spiritual. I meditate an hour a day, blah, blah, blah. Like I, no one just even freaking knew this part of any of this about me and very, maybe a very few people did. And so 
the content creation of the sharing your authentic self is like a, just a magnet for people and opportunities. And I think anymore from a marketing perspective for companies, like the biggest problem that every company has is distribution. Like it's literally the biggest problem that we have. And so I actually think like, I'm never going to stop creating content again. And no matter what company I do next, I'm always going to be publishing because it helps solve the biggest challenge in, for many types of businesses that people have, which is distribution. And if you have an audience, if you have you know, a way of passively kind of letting people know what you're doing, you're just going to get more opportunities. You're going to get more people helping you and you're going to solve for a massive problem, even, even if it's just hiring. Right. Even if, if you sell, if you sell like widgets to like elementary schools, like, well, if you're still publishing, you're, you still need to recruit people. And so I just see it as a super high leverage thing that I actually just like doing. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And I think if you actually just enjoy doing it, I think there's, you know, the best time to get started is yesterday and to just make it a part of your flow. And you are, you are correct in that. Right now, I've been experimenting and branching out where I brought back a podcast. The way that I perceive a podcast, and I think I think a lot of people need to just kind of change their mental model about this is like, look, it's there's a zillion contents out there. There's like, you're every, everyone who's starting a podcast is like competing with Joe Rob, Rogan, Andrew Huberman, like all these big names. But I looked at the podcast as just like, hey, I want to just build a network of people that I want to talk to. And so like, you know, it's not super expensive for me to produce these episodes. And this is just a really easy way to get conversations with people that I want in my life. And by the way, we did this at Troops to get conversations with potential customers. And it was like an incredibly efficient channel for us. We set sales opportunities with 70% of the people that we had on the show. And so, you know, that that's the podcast thing. And then as I was getting into podcasts, what became very apparent to me is that it's all about video now. And, and if you look at even within video, not as at all about video, it's all about short form video. It's all about YouTube's all about reels. TikTok's all about, but TikTok is short term video. Instagram's like literally all about short form, the stories and the reels and stuff. And the point is, is like, if you have a message or something that you care about that you want to amplify, you kind of have to go where the puck is. And the puck right now, in my opinion, is short form video. Unfortunately, people don't like reading as much as they used to. People's attention span is like a smidge. It's like why Twitter is so popular. And so I still do think there is a great audience on Substack and I'm really bullish on Substack and I will continue to write on there. But I am exploring these other mediums that seem to be more aligned with the cultural trends to first and foremost, see if I like them. And if I do and give them an earnest like one to two months, then to see how can I can, can improve. And what I'm finding is I am actually really digging the short term form video stuff. So you, so maybe, you know, give, give a couple, couple points on there. I know you, you recently published a post that, you know, you can't really convert your Substack subscribers directly into YouTube subscribers. And you did a whole experiment of trying to do that. Maybe walk, you know, walk our audience through, and this is obviously for business folks. I mean, founders are trying to create content yeah. for the company. You know, it's like you got you got to distribute your company as well, and you could probably apply some of these same lessons uh, to, you know, your seed yeah. marketing stack. As well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I, um, so I had this big mailing list. It's actually like 
a little over 15,000 people, not 30, but I'll, I'll, you know, appreciate the, the, the pump up, but yeah, I was like, well, I'm just going to grow on these other channels by hitting my email list. And what you realize is that like people, when they are on YouTube, they want to watch videos. When they're on Instagram, they want to look at photos and videos. When they're on Substack, they want to read stuff. And so it isn't necessarily, you, you kind of have to like, to grow on a platform, you got to like understand that platform's game. And so what I noticed on YouTube was I was creating these five minute long videos on spiritual stuff and it wasn't really getting a lot of views. And I was, there was these shorts things everywhere, which are 60 second clips and you know, the first short I created got like 10 X the amount of views as this long video. And I literally just like picked up my phone and recorded myself talking into my phone, like way less work, way less time, way less energy, way less production value. And so it's not to say both are important. I just think that's kind of like the future of that is like what people want to consume is these short form, quick hits of like compelling ideas and stats and topics. And so like, I I think of it like this, like you used to have to watch a comedy for an hour and a half to get a few laughs. Now you can go on to Instagram or TikTok and get like back-to-back laughs like every 30 seconds from just like funny videos. And so like, that's what people want for everything. They want to like, oh, I want to learn about spirituality, like quick hits. Give me like quick hits. I want to learn about to be a founder. Like give me like founders for talking for 30 to 60 seconds on the number one thing they learned over the course of a year. And I can consume 10 of them in 10 minutes. And so that's kind of like, I think where we're moving from a content perspective. And yeah, like I personally think the biggest opportunity right now is TikTok. As surprising as that is, I thought TikTok was just like little kids dancing on, you know, just on the streets or making funny videos. But uh, there's actually a lot of interesting great content on there and people on there and over four, you know, half their audiences is women over 40. It's like not just young kids that are on there. And so what's different about TikTok relative to YouTube and Instagram is it's just easier to blow up on there. And so like they will give new creators the ability to reach a lot of people quickly. Like I I have one friend who, who just started posting videos on his phone and in six weeks, he went from like zero, posting a couple of days, videos a day, talking about the books that he likes reading to like 50,000 followers and over a million views on his content. And like, that's just unheard of on other platforms. And so, yeah, I think like if you're really, you know, just passionate about a particular message and you think your audience is on that place, like that to me seems like really kind of the biggest opportunity right now. That's, that's, that's I think that's a hit. And I never, and I never even, I didn't even have a TikTok account until a month ago because I didn't even mm-hmm. went on it. But I actually, I actually find myself really liking it. I think it's, I, I get it now. Yeah. My wife's really going to love this episode. She's a, she's a big TikTok person. I'm always like pushing her to like create some content. But now that I'm a content creator, it's like, all right, I got to do it. You know, I got to set the, set the precedent. No, that's great, Scott. Well, Scott, man, I, I know we were at about an hour and you've been very gracious with your time. How can folks that listen to this podcast, you know, for obviously your, your Substack's great. What are some of the best places that people should be checking out content from you? 
Yeah, totally. So I actually have two sub stacks now. I started a new one recently. Mm-hmm. So my main one is just my name, Scott Britton, B-R-I-T-T-O-N dot substack.com. You can just search me on there. There's a publication called Consciousness, the Doorway to Human Evolution. And then as I was writing that, I realized I was running growth experiments on the content and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting findings. And so I started another another one called Creator Experiments. So it's just, you can go on Substack and Google or find it, find it by typing that in. And they're basically just the outcomes of different growth experiments that I'm running so that people can have the fast track to learning alongside the things I'm doing. So those are good places. I'm also on Twitter at Britain. And yeah, if you're on TikTok, find me on there. You can just search my name. So I'm kind of all over the place. And would love to hear from anybody that is interested in anything we talked about today. And I appreciate you having me on, Matt. This was a fun episode. No, Scott, this has been great. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Scott Britton, you know, one of the one of the emerging founder turn creators or founder and creators who's also mindful. Like he's hitting all the all the things you need to be thinking about. Mindfulness, founding companies, and creating content online. So Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, and being a guest, we're so gracious that you came on and we look forward to having you back in the future and, and recapping some of these experiments. Thanks, Matt.